many people have the impression that sexism is out and gender equality is in. But what about the mainstream media? Do they reflect or lead or what? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Culture changes very slowly, and political change is even slower. For example, being other than Rigidly straight sexually was the only thoroughly acceptable identity for most of the 20th century, and some great people paid a very high price for just being their true selves. Culturally, being openly gay slowly but surely became okay, but politically, even progressive politicians moved like molasses in the cold of December. It took spectacles like the Greenwich Village Stonewall Riots of 1969 to grab the necessary attention of a wider public. And despite the shock of that event, which played out on national TV, there are still many Americans who fear homosexuality and act out in hate, often violently. Such dramatic uprisings that grab media attention are rare and repressive cultural norms remain largely unaffected because we don't see it all the time. Movements need media attention, but the dynamics of change are frustratingly slow, even with media notice. And of course, TV plays a huge part. It both reflects and directs our culture. So here we are far into the 21st century, and it sure would be nice to think that feminism has achieved its mission, that Western culture has gotten it. Yeah, as the song goes, it ain't necessarily so. Our guest today, Andrea L. Press, is co-author of the new book, Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism. The subtitle is How U.S. Audiences Create Meaning Across Platforms. And as the book points out, the impression that sexism is out and gender equality is in is way premature. Though challenged with science and facts, beliefs are often deeply embedded in we humans, and the problem of such things as racism and sexism go on and on with everyday invisibility. Media spectacles are rare, and by themselves, they don't do the trick. So this book shows how we, as a media audience, can take on pervasive, nearly invisible sexism in the media, from popular TV shows to dating apps on social media. Andrea Press, thanks for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thank you for having me. Andrea Press is the William R. Kennan Professor of Media Studies and Sociology at the University of Virginia, and her other co-authored books include The Routledge, I hope I pronounced that right, The Routledge Handbook of Contemporary Feminism and the New Media Environment. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And, you know, the old Chinese curse says, may you yes, live in... thanks in, for having me may, on the show. Uh, may you live in interesting times. Well, we are. <laughs> 
in the cultural and political context of this day, how did you come to write this book? Well, we wrote this book, and it's co-authored with Francesca Tripodi, who is a system professor in information and library sciences at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Uh, because we noticed an interesting phenomenon. We're both sociologists, and we study media audiences. And what we noticed was that... uh, The women we encountered, the men and women we encountered, were pretty feminist, but they felt that feminism was a movement of the past and didn't demand much attention in the present-day social climate. Uh, And what that meant was that people were ignoring the everyday sexism they encountered in the course of their daily lives. And we wondered why they were ignoring everyday sexism. So the title of our book, Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism, highlights that people ignore everyday sexism partly because of the version of feminism they're seeing in media and in culture. Uh, So what is media-ready feminism? Messages of empowerment that are safe and specific uh, and indicate that feminist struggles are in the past, Um, but also uh, that are targeted mostly towards the struggles of pretty powerful mostly white women and ignore the more pervasive problems that much less powerful people in our society encounter. And many of these people are women of color in distinctly non-glamorous jobs. Boy, and it does seem easier to sort of overlook, uh, uh, you know, anti-feminism and and the lack of of feminist equality for women of color, I, I, I you know the the white, and it's been noticed by people of color for sure. It's it's like, you know, I wonder how it can be, you know, in in I was involved in the anti-war movement in the late '60s, and I remember people of color thinking that's you know it's like a white issue. You know, we were even though people of color were in the front lines but it was hard to connect with with working people people in you know lower economic status and and, and people of color i wonder how the media uh helps uh, keep that uh, a status uh, alive your thoughts Yes. Well, uh, I think that, that is a really inter- uh, that's a really great example, talking about the anti-war movement of the 60s, the student movement, because at the same time, society was going through the civil rights movement, and it didn't necessarily connect with those who were most active in the anti-war movement. The Me Too movement is the example we open our book with. And I think that Uh is a great example of media-ready feminism because hashtag MeToo 
had been coined 11 years earlier by an African-American social worker, Tarana oh. Burr, to mobilize people. But when glamorous Hollywood actresses came together to file complaints against a powerful Hollywood producer, that yeah. caught mainstream media attention. And even that was a struggle for Ronan Farrow, who broke the story in uh, The New Yorker. He couldn't get the New York Times to cover the story initially. And um, he himself is a very powerful white man, Skyon of Hollywood royalty. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even he had trouble getting a, a pretty glamorous story covered, but he did, and it was great that he did, and it raised public awareness of sexual harassment and sexual assault and began a widespread public debate. But it had to be offered in media-ready form for mainstream media to cover the issue. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I wonder, having worked in the news media myself, how people, you know, when they watch the news, they think it just sort of happens, you know, for a half hour. It's just there. There's a <laughs> tremendous amount of work that goes into that and, and grab. So many things are competing for media yeah, attention. No. And y you note that w the example with the, uh, you know, the uh, 2017 uh, Harvey Weinstein thing, uh, w and gathering strength for me too, even though it had been around since sexual assault survivor Tarana Burke, you know, coined the phrase way back in 2006, that media coverage treats such spectacles as novelties. That's what they do. The story, one novelty is replaced by another novelty. It moves quickly. How does the media response to the Me Too movement underscore the ubiquity of what you call everyday sexism? Well, what we'd like to see in mainstream media is a more systematic and highlighted coverage of everyday sexism. And we organized the book around a series of uh, everyday sexist problems. So we have a chapter on work-family balance that looks at a representation in Desperate Housewives, which was very popular at the time we did our interviews. We, we have a chapter on the sexual double standard, the sexualization of women and the kinds of uh, vulgar names they are often called. And there we use an episode of the Jersey Shore to illustrate the way media have treated that issue. We have a chapter on the hazards of hookup culture, and there we investigate the way women are using the dating app Tinder and some of the dangers that they're encountering every day in their use of that dating app. And we have a chapter on the public encyclopedia Wikipedia, which unbeknownst to most of its users actually underrepresents the contributions of women in our culture uh, in a very systematic way. And we'd love to see all of these issues covered by mainstream media systematically, but we don't 
see that for the most part. Well, again, because it's not a spectacle. You got to have a a spectacle to to grab their attention. And tell us, if you would, for a moment, we got to discuss all those things. What kind of research you did? How you uh, investigated? You know what? How you broke it down into demographics, and and what kind of research was done to come up with uh, well, what you learned. As I said, we are sociologists and we study media audiences. So what we did was we selected iconic media representations based on very widely used or very popular media texts or widely used apps or widely used uh, websites. And we probed audience responses to these media examples. We looked at how audiences understood the interpretation of these issues in the websites. So, for example, on the Jersey Shore, the example we chose was a discussion among housemates of uh, what it means if a woman sleeps around. And one of the characters tried to say, you don't call men sluts for sleeping around, but you call women sluts. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. It's not very feminist. And she was immediately shouted down by the other housemates, indicating that they had really no patience for this kind of feminist argument and that women should understand an everyday sexist culture that sanctioned women for being sexually active in a way that it did not sanction men. Uh, wow, that it's yeah, that's pretty amazing, interesting stuff there. So I wonder uh, what what you, how did you do the research? Did you have uh, well on that on that chapter, we interviewed focus groups of college uh-huh. students uh, who who gathered collectively to watch that show regularly. It was very popular with them, and we said. So, is this true in your daily lives? And what we found was that, in fact, they were very aware, college-aged women, that they were going to be called names for being perceived as too sexually active. And so what they did uh, was hide their sexual activity. They just had a tacit agreement to not talk about it with each other, even amongst their friends, wow. and to they uh, to engage in it because they also didn't want to be called another name used on the show, prudes. Uh-huh. Uh, but they didn't want to be called sluts either. Right. So they were walking a fine line, just as Angelina, the character on the Jersey Shore, felt she was also walking a fine line between being called a prude and a slut. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hear that, and I'm, I think to myself, my goodness, here it is, just about 2022, and that's, that double standard is still, and it is there. It absolutely yeah. is there, because we just, we don't look at it. It's invisible, and that, I, you have to shine a light on things to be able to, to make change, and it, it just, it's frustratingly slow when it happens. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Andrea Press, co-author of a new book, Media Ready Feminism and Everyday, Everyday Sexism. I added the everyday twice, uh, but that's what we're talking about here. 
and so many different things. And being of, of a certain age, born in mid-century, uh, I've always, the 20th century, interesting stuff. I was always a big fan of the Marx Brothers. Harpo's chasing of women was considered funny and only slightly exaggerated real life. Now such slapstick would be recognized as most unwanted sexual harassment. And in the 70s, the 1970s, I was one of millions who enjoyed the show MASH. And just recently, I, I took a look and at MASH, and I was shocked by the rampant sexism. It wasn't funny anymore. I couldn't keep watching, not even a whole show. Hollywood of that period had what was known as the casting couch. That was acceptable. Then came Harvey Weinstein, who exemplified what had been acceptable, acceptable Hollywood behavior, which is amazing to think about that. And looking back over the 20th century, what was the media's role in cashing in on what we today would consider unacceptable sexism? Well, that is such an interesting uh, set of recollections. I'm really glad you brought up Hollywood's casting couch and the sexism that we accepted in uh, older Hollywood films. Oh. I don't want to say just older films, newer Shit. films as well. I'm writing a book now called Cinema and Feminism, A Quick Immersion that looks at that ex exact issue. Um, certainly Harpo was, uh, seen in those Marx Brothers films as molesting women. We would call that sexual harassment today mm -hmm. or, or outright molestation since poor Harpo did not speak. So what we were seeing was physical acts of molestation. Mm. And, uh, we had enormous numbers of sexist jokes in 60s sitcoms like MASH and 70s sitcoms uh, that were just accepted as part of our culture. So this, as you began this uh, show, cultural change is very slow. It takes decades. Yeah. I do think we are seeing important cultural changes in my lifetime, certainly, and in your lifetime, we have seen consciousness raised about how sexist those jokes on MASH were or about the fact that Harpo's behavior should not be tolerated. It's just taken a few decades for us to come around to these realizations, and the media play a big role both in perpetuating sexism but also in helping us to recognize it and examine our attitudes. Yeah, it's tough to do. People don't want to do that. They, you know, it's so much easier not not to uh, to look at at things just to pretend it's not there mm. and to and what that does is enable everyday sexism to continue. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I well, want some people uh, want to do it. I think the people who are being harmed by sexual harassment or by sexist jokes are very interested in having those behaviors re-examined and that language re-examined. So they are the motors, activists, yes. feminists, gay activists, all kinds of human rights activists mm -hmm. can help propel 
changes in our culture, and they have over the past hundred years. It does take effort, that's for sure. Often persistent, continuous, frustrating effort, for sure. And the media, of course, is all about making money. You know, some people think, oh, there, yeah. there's this big, vast media conspiracy. Uh, they, <laughs> I think that gives them too much credit. They're just about making money. And to make money, they know they have to connect with a vast American audience. And so I wonder how much they've got to be aware of, of how everyday sexism and feminism is going to play with the audience. They want to keep their advertisers happy, you know, feel like they're connecting with people mm -hmm. and not turning people off. Uh, so I wonder how this uh, dynamic plays itself out on our TV screens. Well, yes, in the U.S., we have a commercial media. Not every country has a commercial media, but we do. And so media companies are very interested in making money. But that rationale has historically been used over and over to justify racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism in the media, and it simply doesn't fly because there are vast audiences for better media representations. They're simply untapped. And when media, for example, when Hollywood allows a woman director to direct a film, which still very rarely happens, right. sometimes that film can be a blockbuster to everyone's surprise. Uh, when Hollywood realizes that African Americans want more representations of African Americans on television and in popular films, they suddenly realize that there's money to be made by broadening the intended audience for their products, and they've been making that money pretty systematically over the past 10 years. So I don't think that we can simply rely on the argument that we have to repeat what we've always done no. or we won't make money. <laughs> well, I can't think of the name of the film I saw a couple years ago. Uh, it was basically a pretty good film. I wish I could remember the name. A woman goes off into the wilderness to live by herself. And she's safe. Yes, al alive. Or is that uh, hiking the Pacific? Coast Trail with Reese Witherspoon? No, that, I, I think it was a different name. I can't remember. But the point was, it mm -hmm. was a, a man saved her. Like, oh, come on, people. And I noticed <laughs> it didn't make money. It didn't do well. It was basically a very well-done film. But maybe the audience was saying something like, ah, oh, come on, people. <laughs> you can do better this. You know, this, this poor frail... Yeah, I think audiences often demand better representations, and they're starting to get them. I mean, we are starting to see some enormous changes in the way Hollywood includes people of color in their films, includes women and people of color as directors of Hollywood films. There's definitely a revolution we've been undergoing over the past several years with Hollywood films. And I think part of that is realizing the audiences are there. The money is yes. there. 
Yes, I I believe you're right. It's just they're afraid to push the boundaries, even though it's uh, minimal boundaries. They, they, you know, so often people, I mean, heck, the Democratic Party likes to do things as they've always done it, and, and they keep losing by doing that. They got to push more, in my opinion, but there's just my opinion as a more traditional left-leaning Democrat. Back to your <laughs> stories. Agreed. Yeah, you say there's a, a missing backstory of Me Too. Tell us, please, and how does the media response to the Me Too movement underscore the ubiquity of what you call everyday sexism? Does media-ready feminism describe something actually new? Uh, I think in answer to this very interesting question of how the media respond, uh, the media are not as good as they could be at critiquing the media. Mm-hmm. Much as they love stories about themselves, they love to cover Hollywood, for example. Um, and I think that is part of the success of Ronan Farrow being able to break the story of Harvey Weinstein and his escapades. Um, they are not very self-reflective. So whereas after a while you saw stories about Tarana Burke coming out in the New York Times and in other media organs. And uh, you had opinion pieces, you had some essays where commentators said, but you know, this hashtag, it has been around for 11 years. Why hasn't it been covered? That part of the story was never highlighted in mainstream media. They never said, there is something wrong with how we decide which stories are important to cover. Mm, mm -hmm. Why did it take glamorous actresses to put this story on the front page? Because less glamorous people experience these issues by the thousands and have been for decades, yet we haven't done a very good job uh, of serving them with our media coverage. And that's something that needs to be discussed in mainstream media, and I really don't see that being discussed. Well, which reminds me of the political aspect of of celebrity. How, uh, I mean, Donald Trump was a TV celebrity. What? But the, you know, people look to celebrities more, and they don't so much in America anyway. Look at issues, where they stand on on issues, and the whole celebrity cult. Uh, I'm I'm not thrilled with it. You know, I I think it uh, it doesn't help us. But the media plays along with that. They they see that it connects with people. That people like celebrities. They don't want to hear so much about their positions on on issues, foreign policy, and reproductive mm-hmm. rights and things like that. That's a tough thing to take on, uh, and I'm sure you've uh, noticed that as, as a sociologist. Yes, I, I, I agree with you that celebrities dominate coverage in mainstream media and that they are not necessarily the best spokespersons <laughs> for every issue. So I was part of a group of graduate students and undergraduate 
students at the University of California at Berkeley uh-huh. that organized around issues of sexual harassment in 1978. We were one of the first activist groups to try to raise consciousness about this issue. And we got a fair amount of media coverage, uh, partly because the topic was very sexy, uh-huh. and we talked about sexual transgressions that uh, professors were uh, wreaking havoc with the lives of their students, and that was seen as pretty sexy by media. (laughs) But not being celebrities ourselves, we couldn't sustain interest and coverage of that issue. And uh, it took Ronan Farrow to be able to do that. And actually, right now, I'm doing a project where I'm looking at what difference the Me Too movement has made in workplaces, because I wonder what the long-term impact of that media frenzy has been. Are women feeling safer and less harassed and less under threat of assault or discrimination in their workplaces. And unfortunately, preliminary findings Uh are not great there. Not great. Still need a lot of change to make those workplaces safer and more equitable for women workers. Yeah, it's it's a, a frustratingly slow process, making that cultural change. And... Media remedy, uh, media ready feminism, you say, reinforces a culture that negates and downplays women's experiences of everyday sexism while simultaneously pushing the boundaries of a feminism concerned with equality and gender justice. How can it do both? Well, I think that we could see more in depth coverage of the systematic nature of everyday sexism in the media. And I think we could see media become a little more cognizant that feminism is uh, an ongoing social project Mm -hmm. and that many areas of life for women are still fraught with inequity and danger. And that society needs to address those issues if we are going to allow women to lead safe and productive and happy lives. And there are changes that we could be making. We could have, for example, paid family leave in this country, which every other industrial country offers, and our country does not. We're way behind the curve in that. And that disproportionately disadvantages women because we do assign women the bulk of duties regarding childcare still, even though those attitudes also are beginning to change, they still have not changed. So in many ways, you know, the, the mainstream media reflects culture and but they also have a role in in highlighting they and, and yes. we we have that expectation of them. Yes. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking about a very important part of democracy: equality. And our guest is Andrea Press, who's uh, co-author of a new book, "Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism." Uh, and uh, 
it, it's real interesting stuff, and there's a lot of changes to be made. And another area of interest of mine is rock and roll. I grew up in the 50s, and I've long kind of looked down on what I call AM radio rock. It appeals to the masses. It's often, though not always, kind of mediocre, not really good art, if it is art at all. So in that light, from that perspective, tell us about the second wave feminist projects that the Me Too's sensationalized sexism has tended to push to the margins, sort of ignoring the more interesting, uh, more meaningful stuff. Well, you know, I do think second wave feminism was a very important movement for women before some of the reforms initiated by second wave feminists. Women could not buy homes in their own names. They could often not get credit cards without having a uh, father or a husband right. co-sign. God, I know. People forget this. They did not have equity. Jobs were labeled men's jobs, I women's remember. jobs. Yes, yes. <laughs> you remember those the help wanted ads? Oh, my God, women, I know. Men. And, we didn't uh, think anything of it at the time. Systematically, yeah. no, of course. We thought that was natural. Yeah. And women's jobs just happened to be lower paid than men uh -huh. for the most part, systematically, as sociologists have since uncovered. Um, all of the, you know, women were not allowed into graduate schools, law schools, medical schools. There were no women professors when I began my graduate studies in sociology wow. at the University of Cal California at Berkeley, a top program in, in the late 70s. And um, we just accepted these inequities. They needed to be uh, addressed with political and social uh, pressure yes. for change, yes. and the second wave feminists brought some of that pressure to bear, and some of these issues changed. We what? still, however, today do not have affordable, subsidized, high-quality child care. We don't have mm. guaranteed paid family leave. Uh, we do have protection against discrimination in hiring. It used to be that accompanied could see you were pregnant and decide not to hire you because you were pregnant, right. and that was not illegal. When I began school, sexual harassment in the classroom was not illegal. We had to fight to make that a legal issue. Now it is a legal issue, but it's very difficult to enforce, and that, that's our next battle. Just a, a, a quick one. Not everybody is aware is familiar with the, the term second wave feminism. If you could just sort of briefly define what that is or was. Well, uh, that's a great question. First wave feminism is generally uh, considered to refer to the battle to allow women to vote. Uh -huh, right. Women were not given the vote in this country until uh, 1919, 1920. Yeah. And so you had waves of suffragettes for decades before that marching That's for sure. to ensure women the right to vote. Second wave feminism is usually dated 
to the 1963 publication of Betty Friedan's uh-huh. book, Feminine Mystique. Friedan was a white middle-class woman who had been accepted to graduate school in psychology, but turned down her fellowship to get married and start a family, and then was very unhappy as a housewife and mother while her husband's career Uh succeeded. And so she wrote a book about the plight of mostly white housewives who did not work, who were by their husbands, always so, a minority yeah. in this country. So, so that was the period of, of second wave feminism. And you mentioned yeah. about, uh, you know, childcare. I, I will admit my naivete in the late 1960s. I thought for sure in the 21st century there would be <laughs> the childcare for everybody so that people could go out and work if they wanted to do that and perhaps even mixing you know older people who can be somewhat lonely with little kids you know and and have yes a government program to do that i was so naive how silly of me but back to the current reality my 25 year old daughter is a game of thrones enthusiast i <laughs> sort of watched one episode. It's been said that Game of Thrones, created by some of the most compelling female protagonists on TV, uh, being entirely ignorant of the show, I also hear there's real misogyny on it. It's been suggested that it's less important than Game of Thrones is not feminist, but the fact that it engenders a healthy argument around the topic, and that is its value. What are your thoughts on that? You talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> we do talk about Game of Thrones. It's a very interesting text because it's multi-layered. It was extremely popular. It does offer quite a number of interesting representations of women characters. It has um, uh, a woman dragon queen. It has a woman warrior who is somewhat androgynous. Um, it also hypersexualizes its women and portrays an incredible, unusual amount of violence, sexual and otherwise, uh, against women. Mm. And so it's mixed from a feminist perspective. It offers a lot from a feminist perspective. It also offers uh, a lot of opportunity for critique from a feminist perspective. So we were interested in how audiences read that text. And we did find that the powerful women characters were quite popular and followed by audience members And unfortunately, the everyday sexism of the show, the rampant sexualization of women and the rampant violence against women was accepted. You know, it was not necessarily noticed or remarked upon. I think it blended in with the everyday sexism that we discuss in the book, Mm. the level of sexism that we simply accept and don't question in our culture. Well, that's always an important uh, thing to uh, to address. And, you know, I know people who truly believe that there is no such thing as systemic racism. 
because it's hidden. It's invisible. It goes on all the time. And boy, it takes a lot of effort to wake people up and say, yeah, it's everywhere that, that systemic racism and systemic, uh, you know, anti-feminism. And uh, it's in there. And and you also talk about, uh, as you mentioned a little bit before, uh, Jersey Shore. That's a so-called reality show. And I am aware that Donald Trump is an indirect beneficiary of the writer's strike of 2007 when TV producers discovered they could make money from what they called reality shows. No writers needed. The Apprentice was one such show. Sorry for that brief inter- uh, interruption there. But of the many reality shows I have not seen, Jersey Shore was marketed as an exploitive portrayal of working-class people and their divergent lifestyles. You suggest that it, too, occasionally pushed the boundaries of feminist for feminist expression. How does their Dirty Pad episode stand out as a brief, media-ready feminist moment? Well, it's interesting because uh, in that episode, Angelina, one of the ongoing characters in the house on Jersey Shore... She expresses very feminist sentiments. She is very impatient with the double sexual standard. She says women should be able to sleep with whoever they want and not incur the wrath of uh, others and not be called dirty names like slut. Mm -hmm. And she is shouted down by the others in the house who say, heck no, you will be called a slut. You are a slut if you sleep around too much. And you have to realize that if you are a woman and you engage in this behavior, people will treat you badly, Mm. and they should. And that is the overall sentiment of the house, the feminist sentiment that Angelina expressed is simply uh, shot down over and over again with individual interviews with every other House member. And uh, it's interesting that the college women I interviewed echoed those sentiments in that they knew they would be called sluts if people thought they were too sexually free. They knew that that's uh, what they were risking, being labeled a slut. They weren't especially happy about that, uh, and they felt sure. somewhat pressured to be sexual, both to be sexually active, as Angelina did um, on that show. Interestingly, she's seen as going into what they called the smush room the room where they have sex with two different people on two consecutive nights. But she actually doesn't have sex with the second person. We know because the camera follows them into that room. (laughs) That's how the show works. The audience gets to see things that the other house members don't. But she doesn't want to tell the other house members she didn't because then they'd call her a prude. Why are you going into the sex room and not having sex? So she's straddling the fence between being called a prude and a slut 
And the women we interviewed straddle that same fence. They really connected to her dilemma. And and the women that you spoke with who, who responded to it, they were from different classes, races, and experiences. And they were. How, how did that uh, affect what they thought about that uh, amazing double standard? Well, it's very interesting because we did have African-American women who talked about uh, needing to be much more careful in their sexual behavior so that they were not labeled something so negative as a slut. They were more vulnerable to these labels. And we also talked to working class women uh, who said the same thing. They said a woman has to be very guarded or she will be badly treated and labeled a slut. And, you know, that was something we encountered over and over again, lower class women or women from minority groups were absolutely labeled um, more quickly and were more vulnerable to these labels and more vulnerable in multiple ways than white middle class women were. Boy, you talk about everyday sexism. That That's a tough one. It, I, I, from... You know, my experience from, you know, knowing a few people and, and noticing uh, cultural change that it still takes a really brave feminist woman to, I mean, people have different interests in, in being sexual. Some, you know, it, it goes all over the place. And to be able to be, you know, sexually liberated and perhaps sleep around, the fact that that's like universally judged, it's okay for men, but it's not okay for women. That's, I guess, going to take a long time to change. And what you know, the fact that it takes such courage for women to say, "Yeah, I do that." Like, mm-hmm. uh, media has some role to play in that, for sure. And uh, how you know, I, I, I wonder. Do you see? And and your research, did you see any kind of adjustment on that angle? Are they starting to to maybe make it, you know... I, I think so. I actually think so. I think we're starting to see media, uh, and when I say media there, I'm talking sure. about popular film and television uh-huh. or popular YouTube shows. You know, there's a variety of sort of... There's a proliferation of media makers in the new media environment, which allows for more diversity of perspective and opinion. And so I think we are seeing shows that question these widely accepted sexist assumptions and fight for uh, equality and for freedom for women and also for protection from social censure and social violence. And uh, uh, it's just a long battle. Yeah. But again, you know, they're in it for the money. That's, you know, they make these things for the money. And if they see that mm-hmm. that resonates with an audience, they're going to go ahead with that, I would think. Mm-hmm. There's also the mention of the old show Desperate Housewives. Popular feminism, I think, assumes that Yes, work-family balance can be achieved through personal choices 
and that its possibility is unimpeded by structural or economic barriers. I suspect that is, I'm sure that's not really a true narrative. How did desperate housewives push back on those ideas? And, and if so, how? What way? Well, we thought Desperate Housewives was a pretty interesting text because we don't often see the problems of working mothers represented in media. And we saw that very distinctly in one of the storylines on Desperate Housewives. So you had a very successful advertising executive, Lynette, who quits her job because she has four small children. But when her husband, Luke, lost his job, she decided to go back to work. And so she scheduled a job interview. And she hoped her husband could watch the children when she went on the job interview. But he hurt his back right before the interview and said he could not watch the baby. So she took the baby with her the job interview, and what we saw were uh, the problems I think every working mother can really empathize with what Annette was going through that day, the failure at the last minute of childcare, um, also a partner who couldn't necessarily step up when needed, and the necessity to convince people in your workplace that the fact that you are a mother does not mean you're not a good worker. And she had to convince two people who were interviewing her for this job that even though she often had a baby in tow, she could be a very successful, high-powered advertising executive, mm-hmm. which is what she had been in her last job. And it was, of course, very funny because the show was part comedy, but it was also very on the mark. And we wondered how women would respond to this representation. Uh And what we found was that older women who had encountered these issues throughout their lives, working mothers who had tried to balance work with family, really connected to the prejudices at work. Uh, There was a woman executive who uh, seemed very negative in her attitudes toward Lynette. She did not have children herself, and she didn't want to hire someone who had small children. The male executive seemed not to notice, and he was the one who made the final decision to Mm. hire her. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, uh, it initiated a discussion of the way uh, male and female supervisors had treated them when they were working mothers in this position. Younger women, interestingly, did not expect to face any dilemmas when they tried to combine work with family. They hadn't gone through that yet, and they held their mothers up as role models of how easily one can combine work with family. So the problems were invisible Mm. to younger women, and I think that's important because it does not prepare them to actually face those problems when they encounter them, which most women seem to do in their lives. Yeah, interesting. It uh, that that of course serves to keep it invisible. The fact that that does you know that freedom <laughs> doesn't apply to 
to all women for sure. I mean, the economic realities of right. it, you know, and it being right. white makes things a little bit easier for sure. Talk about systemic racism. Definitely. And then there's there's always, of course, the new media, social media. Tinder asserts that their app gives women as much power to control the future of their relationships as men. You suggest it's profoundly gendered and unequal. How so? Well, uh, Tinder was an interesting case study. We interviewed college students who used Tinder for fun because, of course, college students often meet others in the course of their real lives. Uh, yet they use Tinder also in their dating lives, and sometimes they just use it to what they call play Tinder for fun. Uh, but what happened when women swipe Tinder is a, an app on people's phones, and you swipe right oh, yes. if you uh, are interested in meeting someone. You swipe left to move on to the next profile. Mm. Uh, when women swiped right and ended up meeting people from the app, there was an implicit consent to sexual activity that they felt there was an expectation they were open to engaging in sex, wow. that they would incur that label of prude if they said no. Oh and so there wasn't a lot of freely free consent to sexual activity going on. And we thought that was really interesting. That is That the assumptions of the app implied consent to sex. There's a lot to talk about. The book is uh, uh, Media Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism. And the subtitle is How U.S. Audiences Create Meaning Across Platforms. And our guest is Andrea Press. So much to talk about, but... You know, if if our media are not currently providing the vo vocabulary and scenarios that would promote a more robust critique of this media-ready feminism, how do we go about creating those tools and opportunities that might be the best for the job? Well, um, we would like to see media take feminist issues more seriously. We would like to see reporters, television writers, screenwriters, producers, and legislators understand the problems women face in combining work with family, in facing sexual violence and sex harassment at work, um, in not having access to the cultural record that records their accomplishments that Wikipedia ensures. Um, we would simply like to see these problems addressed as serious ones in our society, and we'd like to see more uh, equity, a better social and workplace environment for women. And we hope our society can continue to work towards this kind of equity. And one other thing I, I meant to get to is, as you mentioned, Wikipedia. Their criteria for notability and what makes it uh, seems to be tainted with sexism and racism as well. Say a little bit about yes. that. Yes. I mean, what we've noticed 
fact and what has been proven by those collecting systematic data is that uh, women's entries are deleted more often than men's. Most of the Wikipedia editors are men. And there is a pretty systematic deletion of entries about women. They have to meet, and um, especially women of color, they have to meet a much higher standard to be deemed notable than men do. And that is uh, that has enormous repercussions when you think about uh, role models for young women and where do they look in the culture for notable women that set examples of how you become successful and important in your field. Mm. If you don't see any women role models and psychologists have studied this, it has a negative impact on your own achievement and purpose and goal. Mm. Well, as, as it's said about so many things, you've got to keep on pushing. Keep on <laughs> pushing. Thank you, Andrea Press, uh, co-author of the new book, Media-Ready Feminism and Everyday Sexism, subtitled How Audiences Create Meaning Across Platforms. There's a lot of work to do. These are interesting times, and uh, you shed some light on some important uh, areas that often remain invisible to us. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy well, alive. thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kick it, the rhyme, it is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to To get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no whatsoever clue. So listen very carefully as I break it down for you. Merrily, 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 merrily. Hi, hi, happy, overjoyed. Please, will all the beats and rhymes my sisters have employed. Look at me throwing down the sound. Totally a yes. Let me state the position. Ladies first. Yes. 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 There's going to be some changes in there. Believe me when I say being a woman is great to see. I know that all the fellas out there will agree with me. Not for being one, but for being with one. Because when it's time for loving, it's the woman that gets them sworn. Stepping, strutting, moving on, rhyming, cutting, and not forgetting. We are the ones to give birth to the new generation of prophets because it's late. I break into a lyrical freestyle. Grab the mic, look at the crowd and see smiles because they see a woman standing up on her own too. Sloppy slouching is something I won't do. Some think that we can't flow. Can't flow. Stereotypes, they got to, go. got to go. I'ma mess around and flip the scene into reverse. With what? With a little touch of ladies first. And my mind expands throughout the universe. A female rapper with a message to send. The Queen Latifah is a perfect specimen. My sister, can I get some? Sure, Moni Love, grab the mic and get dumb. Yo, praise me.